Without a doubt, there's no question, buy this record. Whatever format, it is an album in the classic sense of like sitting down and reading a book. Like there is a shape to this thing that is flummoxing every time I hear it. It's engaging, it rocks like crazy, and it's creative as fuck. There's a 0% chance you will not like it. And if you don't like <laughs> it, I'll buy the fucking record from you. Welcome to Discography, the podcast that gives Gen X music maniacs a chance to smell like teen spirit again by connecting with a brotherhood obsessed with rating the entire discography of every single artist and band that ever mattered. I'm your host, Dave Gebro, and with three new episodes each week, you're going to gain a comprehensive knowledge of an act's history and output in the time it takes to listen to one album. And in this episode, we'll be turning our spray cans on Wand and Corey Hansen's solo trilogy. Along with our very special guest, Corey Hansen himself, who will be going through his entire catalog, rating every single release he's ever created by his own hand, and rating them all, every last one, from zero to five stars. Tonight's guest, Corey Hansen, is both a tremendously talented singer-songwriter and a motherfucking guitar god. He is truly as good as it gets. In the next hour, Corey talks with Discography about what he's looking for from a record with Wand, 21 bands that have had a huge influence on him, and his two favorite tracks on the new record, Western Come. Okay, first things first, you need to know just how seriously I take this craziness. Discography is a music obsessive's dream come true. The guest and I explore an artist or band's entire discography in a futile but valiant attempt to reach a higher truth, which often is cleverly disguised as a nerdy compendium of star ratings and lists. The show's heavily researched and the music is always reassessed with fresh ears. We don't just cover albums. Uh-uh. We do a searingly honest deep dive analysis of all EPs, singles, comp tracks, relevant solo work, and sometimes bootlegs and live stuff. Every release is slapped with an objectively accurate star rating between 0 and 5, which allows us all. The real reason we do this, the Tootsie Pop reward at the center of the rock and roll lolly to come face to face with the true shape of an artist's overall arc. Coming up, we've got an interview with Testament's lead guitar shredder, Alex Skolnick, Mike Watt rating the entirety of the Minutemen's output, Mark Robinson from Unrest rating everything he's ever done, Robert Schneider from the Apples in Stereo rating everything he's ever done, and Will Hart from the Olivia Tremor Control rating everything they ever did. Oh, and Michelle Phillips rating everything she's ever done, alongside Mamas and Papas author Richard C. Campbell, who's written a brand new book about him getting kind of itchy. So don't miss out. Open up your listening app right now and subscribe. And for premium membership benefits that'll make you ask yourself, how is it even humanly conceivable that this is all the work of one man and one man alone, just visit patreon.com slash discograffiti. We've got 100 episodes available exclusively on Patreon, and that number, as well as the discograffiti inner circle, is growing exponentially by the day. That's patreon.com slash discograffiti. 
And away we go then with Corey Hansen, psych tropes and record collection Easter eggs worn like a button slathered jean jacket turned a buttonless source of influence. Tonight's guest took the cosmic music of the preternaturally blissed out and immersed himself in the rule book until he somehow figured out how to rewrite the thing. Step one on the road to doing so went down 10 years ago when he whipped up drone prone art school combo wand. And then what do you know, this guy starts pulling a low key Genesis Phil Collins hopscotch release schedule with a trilogy of solo records each progressively less cowboy obsessed than the last hats off to him because it takes a certain kind of confidence to go head to head with your own work so early in your career but i'm assuming this guy could give a fuck lads and ladies way out in the twilight reaches of the subterranean cowpoke psych rock scuzz underbelly of the universe it's Corey hansen's grandpa's grandson Corey hansen good lord Wow. That, what an introduction. I don't think I've ever been graced with such a glorious introduction in my life. If that truly is the case, then every other person who's ever interviewed you is a loser. I think that's that's true. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you deserve it because you put so much work into your music. You are a student of music history, and I can hear it in everything you do. Yeah, I guess I am. I guess some would say I am a student of music history. I want to tell you at first that I had a comment on one of our episodes on the YouTube channel. And it was uh, somebody saying, I can't believe this guy calls himself an authority. He'd never even heard this record before he did the show about it. And I don't shy away from ignorance. There's only so much time in a day. And for whatever reason, I just hadn't heard your music before. And I got a phone call from one of my best friends and chief music introducers. His name is Rick Kronberg. And whenever a phone conversation starts with dude, then I know something good is coming down the pike. And so this particular one was, dude, you got to hear this record, Western Come. And I was like, all right, you got my attention. It's the fucking best album title I've ever heard. Keep going. So I reached out to Drag City asking to do an episode with you. I have never done a hot seat episode, meaning an artist rating their own stuff, unless I was very well versed in their material and I knew it wouldn't be embarrassing, knowing that I liked everything, basically. This is the only episode where I went into a hot seat episode, not really knowing knowing your discography, except the one record is so good, I figured there's no way this could go south. I was nervous about it a little bit, but there was no reason to be nervous. You have an amazing discography. Thank you. <laughs> no, really, like the types of discographies that do best on this show is one where you can really track an artist's growth. And with you, it's this amazing game of spot the influence, yet your music is not at all derivative. It's a very considered discography, right? I think so, yeah. I would agree with that. I think it's pretty considered. So before we get into the meat of things, I've concocted a quick little game show for us. 20 influences that showed you how to take drugs to make music to take drugs to. This is, by the way, this has nothing to do with, I have no idea, you may be vehemently anti-drug, but yeah, I'm of course making a Spaceman 3 reference, which is timely mainly from your first three records, but has nothing to do with your current work. So without thinking about it, I just want to hear 20 bands that helped you along the path to where you are now. Okay, 20 bands. All right. Okay. You Can you keep count for me? Yeah, I have my fingers out right now. Okay, excellent. 20 bands that got me to where I am right now. I you mean, can't think of one. I love it. The, the Beatles, The Stones, The Kinks, The Velvet Underground, The Grateful Dead, The Band, Last Exit. 
Uh, Primetime, Meat Puppets, Television, Dinosaur Jr., Sonic Youth, Royal Trucks, Silver Jews, Led Zeppelin. (laughs) Nice. Pink Floyd. Only three more. Only three more? I think I've exhausted all the bands I've ever listened to here. (laughs) I know how deep your taste runs. I don't have to ask. (laughs) Oh, uh, This Heat. Oh, sweet. Good one. Wire, Swell Maps. Okay, that's 20. Uh, Can I ask you about... Crass, 21. Look, you have one of those discographies. It's so much fun playing Spot the Influence. Our Patreon members are called the Soldiers of Sound. To me, you're an honorary Soldier of Sound. Just tracing your discography, looking at the last song on every album, you know how to land a plane, dude. And, and oh, I appreciate that. It's you, hard to do the last song. You excel at it in a crazy way that, to me, demonstrates without a moment's hesitation that this is a guy who studies records. I'm not like a genre or a band guy. It takes a lot for me to get into a band's entire or an artist's entire discography. And it takes me a long time. It takes me years, if not decades, because I get stuck on different artists. You know, I get obsessed with a certain period or a certain record. I mainly just love records that's my main thing and songs i love songs but mostly just records concept records like the first record i ever got into where i was like i'm obsessed with this record was when i was a kid and i got into the white album and that's still your favorite right i mean i wouldn't say it's my favorite but it's something that propelled me it was the thing that flipped the switch in my brain there was like me before listening to the white album and then me after me after was like i'm fully dedicated to only making music i have no interests other than that my whole world was music after that. So as far as your flashpoint moment of creative epiphany, your holy shit moment, I read a, an interview in Paste Magazine where you said you had this shitty amp and, and an okay guitar and the relationship being all day and all night in your room by yourself, just feeding off of it. Was that the thing where everything coalesced or is that too facile to say? Is there a different holy shit moment where it coalesced for you when you realized your life path? I mean, I think that's when I was doing it. There was a couple things that really led to that happening. And I think one of them was listening to the White Album. My mom had a copy of the White Album because she was in a wedding band and she was learning birthday song. They were going to play the birthday song at the wedding she was playing. For some reason, they wanted to play the birthday song at a wedding. And then I picked it up. I like found it and I was like, well, I don't know where my Kid Rock CD is right now. So (laughs) I'll just listen to this. And for some reason, it hadn't clicked for me. I'd listened to it before. And this is a thing that I really appreciate about great music is that it's just sitting there in the record and you can even pick it up, you know, like a book and be like, this makes no sense to me. And then pick it up in a different context later and it just completely hits you, you know, and like changes everything. Wow, this was here this whole time, but there was something wrong with me. (laughs) You know, there was nothing wrong with his music, even though I actively disliked it. So that was when I heard While My Guitar Gently Weeps, I heard the Eric Clapton guitar playing and I was like, I've never heard anything like this. Kid Rock is and making anything like this. And, I, got, uh, I gotta say, I like Devil Without a Cause. You know, it's a guilty pleasure, but I don't mind it. I haven't listened to it in a long time, but I was like a new metal kid. I was like super into Corn and Kid Rock and System of a Down. And, well, thankfully, uh, that doesn't come through at all. <laughs> it's some stuff it does. I think in Golem, it comes through. Actually, in Western Come, there's probably... Yeah, the... Oh, yeah. There's some sewed in there, you know? Yeah, but it's tastefully deployed. I can say that. Um, (laughs) (laughs) For those who are not in the know, Wand is, if I had to categorize in a lazy rock critic kind of way, they're a garage psych rock band from LA formed in 2013. Do you remember the month? I think September. 
Nice. All right, so we got a 10-year anniversary here. So <laughs> these guys have released five studio albums, a demo outtake collection, an EP, a killer single, and a double live album. And Corey's released three LPs under his solo nom de plume. His newest one, objectively the best record of the year. If you disagree, I have some terrific psychiatrist references for you. There is a cosmic music that I could probably trace back to the Silver Apples, but then super strongly at play again in the early to mid-1990s with Spaceman 3 spiritualized and Sonic Boom slash Spectrum. I'm referring right now to, what, the first 16 months or so of Juan's existence. I remember mm -hmm. seeing Sonic Boom, Pete Kember live. Are you a fan? by any chance i haven't really spent too much time with the sonic boom stuff the spectrum guy yeah 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 more, more producer now but yeah i was very into that music at the time and frankly i thought when i first started but you know especially while i was on golem i thought okay this is what these guys are going to be doing here and it really veers off into a whole different place that's much more a singer songwriter even in the context of the band itself so here's a, a section of the show that I affectionately call the run-up. The idea is, in as economical a fashion as possible, getting from the moment you were born to the first note that was released. Prior to forming Wand, you performed under the moniker White, right? In college, yeah. You were also obviously in the orbit playing guitar with Michael Cronin and Ty Seagal. While you were kind of more heavily in that touring coterie, I think you were making music that was a lot more in that vein. And you were working on the songs that would become Ganglion Reef, the band's debut, but then you re-recorded your material after forming Wand with Lee Landy and Evan Burrows, who were former classmates of yours, right? Yeah, and Daniel Martins was playing guitar. But yeah, I recorded all of that one summer. I demoed everything myself and just kind of having fun, like not really taking it very seriously. I thought I was making something that was more like big beat style. Like I was like listening to a lot of Chemical Brothers and Primal Scream and Happy Mondays and stuff like that. Not Happy Mondays, but early 90s British big beat shit, like yeah. baggy. Madchester. Yeah. It just ended up being more of like a psych rock record. And it was right when all that psych rock shit was happening with Tame Impala and all that stuff. And I was listening to that stuff and I was like, hmm, these guys seem to be like influenced by Almond Duel 2. And yeah. <laughs> I am obsessed with Almond Duel 2. So I should just try to make some kind of almond duel to German Cosmish type band just for fun. You know, I yeah. thought it was just like a fun thing to do. And I got the demos together and then I hung out with Ty Siegel, who I've known for a long, long time. And uh, we were at a party at his house and we were very, very drunk. And I was like, I'm going to play you this thing that I made. And I played him the demo of Fire on the Mountain. And he was also really drunk. And he said, I'm going to put this out. And I went, okay. And then I went and I puked in the backyard. <laughs> what a great song for you to have played him. I mean, of everything that's on that record, I believe that that's the one that has its finger on the pulse of utilizing dynamics in a way that would become, I think, second nature to you. But on that record, it's more vibey than songwritery, in my opinion. But mm -hmm. that song has both. Yeah, I mean, early Wand, the dynamics were more like on-off, you know, it's like flipping a switch, like from brick wall, heavy, loud, to like whisper, quiet, and it, it was more like... The Pixies. Uh, 
Yeah, I guess. Yeah, it was more pop or something in that sense. And for those first three records, I mean, I wrote the majority of that music. I wrote all of the first two records. And then the third one, we started to write together more. And then by the fourth one, everything was more democratic and open. Which is interesting that it worked so well, because are you a Badfinger fan? Oh, yeah. Fucking love Badfinger. Okay, so, you know, we did an episode on them. And by we, I mean me. Uh, but Sad the, story. Sad the, story. Uh, yeah, along with Moby Grape, it's the saddest. It doesn't get sadder. But when I think of a band that attempts to be democratic, where it was just a mistake, nobody comes to mind like Badfinger. You had Pete Ham in that band, but he was such a nice boy that they all wrote songs, but the criteria for a great Badfinger record is how many Pete Ham songs are on it. Mm-hmm. You know, Tom Evans and Mike Gibbons, they were crucial to the band, Joey Mullen too, but they're no Pete Ham. Sure. Yeah. I want to introduce the characters in today's episode. So obviously you uh, singing and on guitar for the last 10 years, Lee Landy on bass, Evan Burroughs on drums, and then Daniel Martins was only in the band for that initial crazy run of your prolific early stage. I believe he left because he had a child, right? Yeah, he had a kid. And then you brought in Robert Cody on guitar and Sophia Aragin on vocals and synth. She's a very prominent member of the group because she's actually singing some of the time. And then it really kind of became a different type of band. So I want to talk about your name as well, because I love the band name. After hearing the explanation for it, you had said that you wanted a name that was kind of empty, like a wand being more of an idea, like a tool. It's a vessel to, to execute a superhuman thing. That's awesome. I mean, it's all about potential, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, I honestly, I think the band name is the least important thing about the band. One of my favorite bands to ever exist is called the Beach Boys. (laughs) They're my favorite band of all time. Yeah. And they're called the Beach Boys. You're like, you say to other people proudly, you say, my favorite band ever is the Beach Boys. And they felt it too, because in the early 70s, when they were not being taken seriously, they were very heavily flirting with the idea of becoming Beach. Oh, that's a great band name. Yeah. Shit. Yeah. I'm going to have to lift that. I'm going to have to take that. Just take I'm it, man. Copyright it right now. In the oral <laughs> tradition of Harry Smith, it's all yours, bro. <laughs> <laughs> So, like I had mentioned, this is the first time in the history of Discography that I've opted to break chronology. It makes sense here. So, I believe 2023 is a really cool vantage point from which to view your past. And the new record is just so goddamn fucking good that I'm putting Western Come up front and... This is also a barefaced tribute to Raging Bull, the form of which revealed itself in the editing room. So we're beginning at the present moment and then working our way back up to the present. Just to be clear, I'm De Niro in this situation, right? Yeah, absolutely, man. Holy shit. Yeah, you are De Niro in this situation. Well, this is a sad story then. Well, I'm going to end up working at a nightclub. It's a triumphant retake uh, on Raging Bull. <laughs> on, my, becomes... on my anger issues and <laughs> domestic abuse problems. Yeah. Yeah. Listen, any card that you flip, I'll flip in turn. If it does become an emotional revelation party, so uh, whatever card I'm asking you to flip, I'll do so first if you'd like, okay? All right, Western Come. Currently, I believe you're at the unquestionable apex of your talents up to this point. In the last 10 years, 
I don't believe you've assimilated everything you've done to a professional extent where you've landed on Western Cum. You seem to me to be firing on all cylinders more so than ever, so I wanted to start here. If Pitchfork was a dude, I would kick him right in the balls for you because good review, but seven point whatever that they gave you is crazy. The album is a 10. I believe, you know, we talked about there never being a perfect record. And as far as the outlook of an artist, it kind of has to be that way. Because if you do something perfect, or if you see it as perfect, then your work here is through. So we can't have that. But I believe it's a perfect record. I believe you're also ready for your rock opera. You've been teasing this now for years with <laughs> songs that bleed into one another and conceptual likenesses, but nothing glam lies down on Broadway like quite yet. So I want to talk about stuff that you haven't revisited to death in interviews recently trying to push this. Do you have a favorite on the record? On Western Come? Yeah. I like Ghost Ship a lot. I mean, Driving Through Heaven, I think is pretty great. That was like the big gamble on the record. I I wanted to do something that was just as indulgent in the guitar stuff as I possibly could. It's always the tendency on a studio record, I feel like, for guitarists to be restrained. And um, you hear that on like Jimi Hendrix records and stuff, which is why his bootlegs and his live records are the way to really hear his songs and the way he's thinking about music. And I wanted to do something that was like, let's just let all the ideas happen and not edit it down. Yeah, but um, this has worked out. You know, when I think of something that's self-indulgent, it's where the dynamics are not tweaked to where you're keeping audience interest. This to me feels like a nephew to Marky Moon. It's definitely very inspired by uh, Tom Berlain's guitar playing. And I always forget about this, but it started as a song that I brought to Wand in 2015 when we were working on A Thousand Days. Mm -hmm. And we we worked up like a whole version of it and everything. And it was a completely different song that I don't even remember what it sounded like. I have a recording of it somewhere. And then I took that, just the basic riff, the opening riff and stuff. And then I just completely constructed something different out of it and then expanded it into this larger song. From Twins to Driving Through Heaven to Motion Sickness, again, a tease of a rock opera because these things bleed into one another. And so let's let's talk about Wings first. So that riff is just perfect. Not only is it the best riff of the year, I think, it's also a completely and totally perfect song from Soup to Nuts. I listened to it maybe 20 times just two days ago. And the two biggest aspects of the tune that keep me hungering for more over the long term are the subtle variations of the pre-chorus riff. Every tweak that you do of it is like a whole new riff. And the outstanding Thin Lizzy Skinner dual guitar interplay. You're definitely ramping up on the dual guitar thing on this record. Where does your dual guitar inspiration mainly come from? Is there a particular source band-wise? Oh, definitely Thin Lizzy. Thin Lizzy, who else? I mean, Allman Brothers. But Thin Lizzy in particular, I I think just did dual guitars or overlapping guitars and the way that they wrote those parts i think is just really fucking amazing not that many bands do the dual guitar thing like the harmonizing no. guitar do Difficult. you think that the almonds are the best iteration of southern rock or do you think that skinner takes the cake i don't know i mean skinner's fucking great i think i'd probably be the first song skinner definitely i'd yeah. say yeah but for guitar, I mean, Dwayne Allman is just unmatched. Dickie Betts. Yeah. Like, I think as a unit, I think they are uh, more interesting to me, harmonically, melodically. They're more inventive than Skinner. But I think as far as songs, you can't beat those, those Skinner songs. 
That's the thing, is that Almonds could stretch out, but Skinner had the better songs, I think, for the most part. I want to say that, objectively, Wings is the greatest song of all time because it is all songs of all time. It's got it all. The music that you make is maximalist in the best way, except, obviously, when you want to tone everything down for some of your solo efforts. But Housefly, again, that opening riff, is just fucking crazy. It's so good. And also, there's this hugeness in the music that so beautifully belies the subject matter, which is just a piece of shit fly. (laughs) (laughs) You know what? This one makes me think of Doug March, and it really makes me think of Perfect From Now On, another perfect record. Did that one have any impact on you? No, I don't know what that is. Okay. From the 90s, it's probably the closest thing to a sprawling classic rock return to that kind of vibe. If you didn't love this record, I would be gobsmacked, man. It's called Perfect From Now On. It's even got that super confident title and you know i don't know if you're a (laughs) built the spill fan but you heard that and you're like how is he going to top this and of course he never did so housefly another perfect one persuasion architecture having so much fun with your influences to open with what sounds to me like thrash metal but i was just schooled on that it's actually new metal (laughs) it's 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 more thrashy i mean it's definitely doing like a thrash thing this is one of the reasons i love the record so much is that to go from that into a softly strummed acoustic lullaby with the super gentle Ooing the ooh background vocals and pedal steel in less adept hands that would be a hey check me out I mean it's such a hey look at me thing and it doesn't at all read like that you know in fact if I have it on in the car for people who haven't heard the record it doesn't make people stop and go what the fuck is this it just sounds like it was meant to be that way also Evan's work with you how long have you known Evan backer yeah backer he went to CalArts too I've known him like 15 years he played drums and a lot of the instruments on Pale Horse Rider. And yeah, we just shedded out this record together with the same Pale Horse Rider band, but with my brother on board playing bass with Tyler Nuffer on guitar and steel. Who's he awesome. Did all- Oh he's yeah the tastiest guy the yeah. tastiest licks you know and and yeah. really musical i it's... love the way that evan drags the beat he's always <laughs> he's always behind in the best possible sense that makes your music feel so alive it reminds he's... me a lot of joey warnicker's earlier work with beck yeah he really breathes as a drummer and his whole feel and the way that he kind of inhales and exhales tempo and ramps things up and stuff it's all very musical in the way that great drummers do it you know like Bonham drags all the time Neil Peart rushes yeah yeah (laughs) all these drummers have they're they're not shortcomings there's it's just like a way of interpreting something that could be very metronomic and and straight ahead and uh yeah he's kind of like Phil Collins in a way to me like on those Genesis records where he's just like really he's expressing something deeply musical on the drums yeah and really sympathetic to what you do you know and just like uh you know what a crazy fucking comparison considering the type of music you play but phil collins and genesis it wasn't like one of the two acts was clearly better than the others you needed to have both and that is clearly what's going on here too horsebait sabotage a shit kicker with a <laughs> with an incredible harmonic solo section that lifts it the midsection harmonic solo section and the final minute that closing ambient fogscape are absolutely amazing as good as anything else on the record and that guitar work it feels like it's got some 90s sort of indie rock action going on in there but i don't know if that is actually a source of inspiration for you or not oh totally go ship your favorite song of all time <laughs> 
obviously the lyric of the year. This is an objective fact. This is not a conjecture here. The cocaine that you're carrying is taped down to your balls is definitely the lyric of the year, possibly of all time, <laughs> especially because of the way you sing it. Totally straight faced. I love this style of ballad that you do. And your voice is so preening. It feels like you're consciously trying to find that point at the top of your range where you don't know if your voice is going to crack or not. It's like a Neil Young kind of a thing. You have that thing that to me feels very alive because you're kind of pushing the envelope on what you're capable of. I'm obviously very influenced by Neil's records and we have a similar range. It's interesting uh, though, because talking with you, you know, your voice is deep. Is your natural range deeper? No, no. Really? I can't, okay. I can't sing. My range doesn't go down very far, which is a, a shame. I mean, with a lyric like cocaine that you're carrying is taped onto your balls, it's not really about vulnerability at all. It's just a good line. I like that line. It's a great line. <laughs> and, but your delivery of it is crucial because I didn't know that's what you were singing the first bunch of times I heard it. Because the way you sing it, it doesn't call attention to itself. It's perfectly delivered. So the triumvirate at the end of the record, the knowing wink that a rock opera is coming next, fingers crossed anyway. <laughs> Let's see if I can pull it together. <laughs> <laughs> hey, by the way, just as an addendum, I don't know if you're a fan of the association. Really good Sunshine Pop band. And they asked me to be their manager a few months ago. It did wound up not working out, but the real reason why I'm bringing it up is I said, look, if you guys want me to manage you, the only way I'm going to do it is if your next record is a rock opera. So I am just an orchestrator of rock opera, so you'll have to forgive yeah. me. <laughs> so you're, you're a big rock opera fan. I love rock operas. Not shitty ones, but the people who can pull it off and do so very well are breathing rarefied air, and you're one of those dudes. It's coming. I know it's coming. So Twins is funny to me because it's got the Schwarzenegger DeVito reference, and I'm going into it thinking this is going to have sort of a gimmick to it, like a thrash metal into lullaby thing or whatever it is. But the funniest thing about it to me is that it's completely gimmickless, totally straight-faced, and Tyler Nuffer's pedal steel on this is just masterful. I mean, as spot-on perfect as Jerry Garcia on Teacher Children. And your background vocals, just the ooing and aahing that you do, it's amazing how much it elevates your material. Oh yeah, I refer to those folks as my castrata. Are those just folks me. you? Yeah, they're just Yeah, that's what I figured, yeah. Driving Through Heaven, the earned and exceptional centerpiece of the record. My favorite part or aspect of this is that all these different sections of this thing, which easily could be a Roman numeral studded prog rock, you know, retitled piece of insanity. The sections naturally flow in and out of one another in such an organic way that this juggernaut, which could be very weighty in less capable hands, it shuttles along so beautifully and you never notice the length in case somebody was to just be an adherent of short songs, which I could give a rat's ass about. But it's just an expert use of dynamics. It's a show-off bonanza that never once feels show-offy. So it's a magic trick then. I guess so, yeah. <laughs> and then, um, which is where Wand comes in. So Motion Sickness is the last song. Again, landing that plane so beautifully. Again, with the background vocals and just the right dab of twin guitar riffage. This is knocking on heaven's door simple with just the crazily most apt touch of classic guitar riffage that would be imaginable under any circumstances. It's a perfect closer. I give this record an unassailable five stars. You gave it four, which I think for the most part, I give almost all your records except one a higher rating than you do. <laughs> okay. What was your feeling when you had initially completed it? 
Did you feel like this was something special? Did you feel like, oh, well, I tried. I'll try better next time. What was the vibe that it left you with? Well, it always feels good to finish a record. And this one in particular took a long ass time just sitting around, you know, not even actively like working on it, the production of it. And that includes the manufacturing of the vinyl and all that stuff. It just took fucking forever kind of crawling out of the aftermath of COVID when everything went to a snail's pace. Did you have a particularly rough time during that era? No, no. I would say that I got off pretty easy and it was a very productive time, but it has created like a backlog of my records that is ongoing. It's going to take probably the next five years to figure out how to get all these records out. Nice. Which is exciting for everybody else. (laughs) But for me, you know, I I felt a a tremendous amount of relief, as I always do, when the record is done, just for the sake of like, oh my God, this is a finished idea. And now I can immediately start working on something else with all of my energy and faculties available, which is what I did. Are you able to talk about any of the other projects? Well, the wand record is like the big one and that is also near ready to be taken out of the oven as it's closer than it's ever been yeah that that one has been probably the longest it's been like a two-year experiment (laughs) and it's been four years for you guys yeah it has been a long time i mean we made that live record which also took a very long time to put out just for the vinyl alone it took a year and a half to get the vinyl made it was a total nightmare getting that thing to sound as good as it could on wax western was a lot easier. It just sounded really good. I think a lot of the problems we had with the live record, Spiders in the Rain, we then corrected. <laughs> you know, just in terms of like getting the lacquers made in the right place and all the logistics of that shit. But now things are faster, so things should be coming out with greater frequency. So are the you one- always going to be five records ahead now? Because you're going to keep making stuff, right? It's not like you're going to stop until all the material yeah. that you had amassed. It doesn't seem likely. Yeah, it seems like I will have a little bit of a head start, which has its advantages and disadvantages. It doesn't represent who you are. Well, yeah. I mean, like in terms of even this conversation right here, like I'm struggling to even recall what I was doing (laughs) when I was making Western Come because we recorded it in June of 2021. Mm -hmm. So two years ago. You can just make shit up, man. Because I mean, you know, I'm in here like studying everything that you're doing and you're not doing that. You're off on the next thing, you know, so obviously it's going to be a different perception of that kind of stuff. Usually I put the plugs at the end, but since this is the end, let's go like buckshot with the crazy plugs. Are you currently on tour right now? I know you just had a break in the gigs, right? Yeah, I just finished a wand tour, but I'm leaving to go to Europe in five days for more uh, Western cum shows in Europe, mostly Western Europe and the UK. And then I get back and then I, it looks like I'm going to be touring in the US in October, November. Sweet. You're going to be around Jersey, New York, tries that area probably oh yeah i will oh yeah awesome i'm coming out excellent um yeah i can't wait so without a doubt there's no question buy this record whatever format definitely buy it it is an album in the classic sense of like sitting down and reading a book like there is a shape to this thing that is flummoxing every time i hear it it's engaging it rocks like crazy and it's creative as fuck everything about it if you're you know, consider yourself an avid listener of this show, there's a 0% chance you will not like it. And if you don't like it, I'll buy the fucking record from you. Just get in touch, but make sure you go and purchase it. 
Hi, I'm Dave Gebro. I threw my career as a licensed hearing instrument specialist in the trash, sold my house, and moved to the East Coast with my wife and four-year-old son in order to focus on making the ultimate podcast for music obsessives thrive. Now I need your help. Although Discography is rated in the top 2% of all podcasts globally, the economics of this thing are tricky. My monthly income at the moment totals a whopping $760. Becoming a member of Discography's Patreon gives you access to over 100 more episodes, and moving forward, you'll get up to three shows a week. There's the main show every Friday, Wednesday's brand new series, The Top 10, and Monday's Wildcard episode, which could be anything from interview bonus material, our buried treasure show, Rock Cousteau, our slag off show, Queasy Listening, and exclusive limited series like The Private Press with Paul Major. And if you've got no financial worries to speak of, Keep in mind that some of the higher Patreon tiers allow you to actually advertise on the show, choose the bands we cover, or even some of the guests we get. For the price of a cup of coffee a week, you can ensure my family's fed, build a music library that'll be the envy of your block, and connect to a thriving community of music maniacs all at the same time. Don't risk feeling badly about yourself by not giving. Patreon.com slash discography. Once again, that's patreon.com slash discography. And now back to our expertly crafted program. So to start from the beginning now, we are at phase one, Sledgehammer to the Psychedelic Skull, 2013 to 2015. So this really covers that brief marathon of releases that you had within, was it like 13 months? You had three records come out. So first one is Ganglion Reef in 2014. Did you have all the material ready by the time you'd formed Wand in 2013? Or did some of these things come after you had gotten the group together? Oh, I wrote everything and demoed everything that demo record from a capsule underground that's all the shit that i was sending to them on soundcloud and being like hey you want to play in this project so all of that stuff is pre ganglion reef yeah all of it okay so in that case let's talk about that first so released in 2017 from a capsule underground's got demos and studio outtakes or just demos i think just demos okay i really like this compilation i wouldn't say that it's just like any demo collection it's not necessarily like an indispensable artifact but it is definitely not a superfluous collection of early demos it's somewhere in the middle so all the tracks i think present some kind of interesting stylistic twist on where you all wound up with the material eventually. That's why I feel like it hangs together as a separate, more insomniac style cousin to its released brethren. <laughs> it's got like a drag. Right. So when I say insomniac, it's like this midnight kind of vibe as opposed to getting pummeled like the released studio versions. Sure. Yeah. Without burrows on drums. I actually think the drums that I used to build the drum machines, I was just using like Bill Ward samples and Moon Age Daydreamer. Five years, the Bowie song. Oh, I love that. Like those drums. and but, but yeah. Yeah. Exactly. You know, just looking at, for example, Broken Candle, it's not incredibly different from the release version, but it's got the sort of Arthur Lee, Brian McLean, Spanish guitar flourishes that take it into a different area. Totally. I mean, different mm -hmm. feel to it. So yeah, you gave this one three stars. I give it three and a third. Okay. And then Ganglion Reef. Okay. So as far as record labels go, this was your buddy Ty Siegel's he released this, right? Through his God imprint through Drag City? 
Yep. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Looking back on this effort, only because it's so different from what you do now, just in an overriding sense, what is your feelings toward the early material? I'm pretty fond of all of it. I'm not embarrassed by any of it. I'm not like, oh God, why the fuck did I make that? I think the first record in particular, I, I have a lot of affection for because it was so formative and we were all so excited about making music and playing together. And, you know, all of us came, me and, and Lee and, and Evan, like we all played in DIY bands and continue to play in DIY bands. I mean, Evan's got Pink Trash Can and Behavior and Split Bell Chime with Robbie. But we were all coming from that world, you know, playing at The Smell and LA used to be even before that time more so like a DIY paradise it was just like all the abandoned industrial spaces you know that had been empty for 20 or 30 years suddenly had show space they were just converted into show spaces I was just going to every one of those shows I could possibly go to and seeing everything that I could see and it was such a scene and that of course has been completely suffocated out of the city and most of the country so coming from that world we had all been in bands that nobody gave a shit about as everybody starts <laughs> and so then all of a sudden this one thing kind of happened very quickly and i remember we were playing at permanent records oh yeah on the day the record was released and it was a free show the store was packed ty was there and he came up to me and he was like dude congrats the records sold out and i was like well, what do you mean it just came out today he's like yeah there's no more copies <laughs> And then I was like, oh shit, that's crazy. I've never been able to sell like a hundred copies of a record. Was that the happiest moment of your life up to that point? <laughs> it had to have been, right? It was the first time I felt like, oh, things are actually happening. I was in a band called Together Pangea where they signed to Capitol Records and I was doing meetings with the head of Capitol Records and this manager and this lawyer and stuff. And that was less exciting to me because it felt like, okay, this is great, but where's the part where I get completely fucking screwed here? Yeah. That you're not, that, that's the only thing you're not telling me. Mm -hmm. So I left that deal that world. But that was my only other reference point for success in terms of my life experience until, you know, we just started releasing records as one, which was like totally independent through Drag City, which is a entirely independent. And then seeing that like kind of organically start to have an effect was really affirming for sure. Yeah. I mean, it's hard to get noticed. I mean, now with social media, everyone's clamoring for attention. And we read a quote from Pee Wee Herman where he was saying, if you're weird and trying to get attention for yourself, these days, I feel bad for you because it's like impossible to get noticed. So I don't know how many years you were doing what you're doing and thinking, God, I hope this takes off. But that feeling where you don't have to write down today's wins to keep your perspective on track. It's just like, okay, good. It's happening. And that's a really secure feeling. Yeah. It doesn't always happen either. Like I remember when 1000 Days came out, that was our first record on Drag City. And that was the first time where you know, the record didn't sell out the day it came out and we were hmm. like, oh shit, what did we do? Is this record really bad? I mean, sure. I think in the end, it's like there's a, we had released three records in a year. So how much attention could we possibly hog? How much can you actually grow in a year? I don't know. Um, uh, in your particular case, quite a lot. I mean, because I feel <laughs> like, and we'll get to this as well, but I feel like you were on a mission to expunge your influences from you so that you could fly above them. Whether or not you realize that that's how the discography reads. And so by the time you get to that record, the clamor around the production has abated a little bit so you can hear the songwriting 
And all of a sudden, this is, you know, I think of you more like Harry Nelson than Pete Kember. After getting Golan out of the way, these things all got made so quickly. So it's like Ganglion Reef was done. I remember we finished that record. Ty was like, we're good. I was like, cool. Then he's like, Larry at In the Red wants to do a record with you. I was like, oh. Well, let's fucking absolutely do that. And it was just one of those situations where it's like anyone that comes around that it has a good reputation, I'm just going to mm. say yes to. And we're just going to fucking work our asses off and do it. And so Larry came up and obviously everybody loves Larry and he's released so many great records. So we wanted to immediately do something and we put together Golem in those six months and then finish that. Wait, before you pass through Golem, you said that you got it out of the way. I just want to talk about what that means to you. I think that's just the term I use for when a record is done and you take it out of the oven and then it's oh, like, okay. good, good, that's just out of the way now. Okay, I, I, <laughs> like, but I would say that about every record I've done. It's like, oh, good, this is out of the way. Now I can just focus, you know, on this new thing. And Golem's the only one where I believe we are in firm agreement on the rating. So you, we, what did you give it? We both give it two stars. So two, I, yeah. I, got no, I have nothing negative to say about it. I just feel like it's a floating mood without the blast of intriguing songwriting dynamics that to me made Ganglion Reef more appealing, like Fire on the Mountain, like the two closing songs, which are fucking great. Growing Up Boys and Generator LARPing, uh -huh. really, really strong closers. And then I feel like with Golem, at least this is how I took it, we're left with more just the mood without the highlights of the songwriting. So your influences are all terrific and inspired. The only problem I had with Golem is that it felt like you were drowning in them instead of allowing them to hold you and your talent aloft. I think that's pretty fair. I mean, in terms of contextualizing it to the time, I mean, we were obsessed with volume, stage volume, and yeah. like having big ass amps and like having this like big bulbous sound like uniform sound at the time i was not i didn't consider myself really like a great guitar player and i was just kind of figuring out my shit but you know one of the things about playing guitar is that you can just play loud and louder and louder and it sounds more present and more like in people's ears and it can be a way to kind of mask the lack of listening or technique or you know response sure. or or, any, or something to say just yeah, any, yeah, anything kinda... to say and the reason why i can say that confidently is because you have a lot to say. So if you don't strip away that stuff, you're not going to be able to get your message across. Yeah. So there was a lot of bands going around at that time. I remember like Destruction Unit was playing all the time in LA. Seeing them, that was a band that was like entirely about like devotional volume shit, you know, while like sounding like brain bombs or something, <laughs> right. but just really loud. And I was super into Melvin's and Electric Wizard and Sleep and all mm -hmm. that stuff, that world of sound Sabbath worship. I wanted to compose something that would focus on like the mono dimensional riff, you know, the riff as like a singular idea, like there's mm -hmm. nothing else going on but the riff. Every single instrument plays the riff, the guitars play it, the drums play along to it, <laughs> the bass plays it, and the vocals sing the same riff, you know, and just have it be this like uniform thing in the style of English heavy metal and then like stoner and rock. And I think for that stuff, 
it's probably the most melodically diverse <laughs> stoner, you know, rock record and stuff. There's like acoustic guitars on it and shit. That's interesting too, because I, it's hard for me to hear that. Yeah. Well, I mean, in the context of Melvin's records or sleep records or whatever, I mean, on Sabbath records, there's lots of acoustic guitar, you know, and there's real sad, you know, fucking stick your head in the oven songs like changes and shit. <laughs> and there's Laguna Sunrise too. Yeah, totally. And I, I wanted it to be more of like a metal offering. Yeah. But it, yeah, like looking back on it, you know, that like with Western Come, it's like, oh, well, this is just my world. I love making guitar music like this. I could do this forever. And Golem, I'm like, do I need to revisit this? No. And people often more than anything ask me to. And, oh, really? Sometimes demand that I do it and get very upset, you know, that I have left them with this record that they hold in very high regard, but that I have moved on from and don't really mean to revisit. I picture those people screaming Judas at your shows. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I've had beers chucked at me in like the Plum days after the first three records when we did Plum. I mean, I got beers chucked at me. What the uh, fuck? That's I got, so weird. I got, people would try to fight me i almost got in a couple fist fights that's crazy of- man because you're just a guy who either was aware that he was more talented than what the genre would allow or you became more talented than what the genre would allow but either way you're growing and that style of music would have been a dead end for you to stay there with the type of material you were coming up with yeah well the big thing with wand also i mean i've always been a sponge but having band members that i really trust like music is their entire world and they have very developed opinions and very developed you know senses of taste and are super intelligent and articulate about it so having conversations with them about what to do next and where to go is what made plum plum as a record like i could never make that record again it was like in that moment of time we put that together really fusing our taste but without them you know and if i was alone in the dark i don't know maybe i would just make golem over and over again (laughs) No way. I don't think you would. I don't don't think think I would either because I have solo records that are very much the opposite of that. It's interesting how you like to exercise your maximalist tendencies in Juan and then your minimalist tendencies solo, except Western Com seems to find a meeting point there. The music, it does kind of get maximal, at least in the guitar world for Western Com. But I, I I don't really think of Plum as like a very maximal record. There's like three overdubs on each song on that record really yeah it's very like very much just live takes in comparison with the other two the other two are kind of of a piece and western come is not like those other two to me anyway I, i hear a much more somber take on things the first two and then this is much more playful sure yeah the thing that i like to do when i'm working on a record is to get like a feeling not even necessarily like a musical thing it's just like a feeling you know this is like the kind of atmosphere that i want to chew on for this entire record and then to take that and be like how much can i open this up how much can i play with it what can i do with it that'll make it just keep breathing life into this thing you know till it's like a world to stick with your authorial intent and get the vibe across of what you're trying to communicate are you taking everybody's idea is everyone allowed to do whatever they want in the band or is yours the final decision really with wand we have to decide on everything together i think that our band meeting conversations or philosophical conversations about music and what kind of music we want to make have been the least determining of what 
we actually make at this mm-hmm. point with this record we, we are just about to finish it's definitely true because 99 percent of it is improvised and then we just cut it together into compositions oh no shit the one that hasn't been released yet yeah oh cool so you've not really gone that route before in terms of composing right well we have but to a lesser degree this was more like you know we've been dipping around in this pond for a while like let's dive in and kind of get lost and and make our own map back Laughing Matter and Plum were both records, probably 70% of the songs on those records were improvised pieces of music that we then composed and then learned how to play and then uh, put that onto tape. But with this one, we just eliminated the learning how to play part. We were just like, let's just play. And it's always the best strategy when you're working with a band and people change, you know, all the time and their opinions change and resentments build and change and stuff. It's very complex complex stuff but if you just shut the fuck up and play it's usually pretty good if you let everybody just be who they are and everyone is allowing for that space and respecting that space it's a lot better than having an abstract or like philosophical conversation about where you're at with wanting to make music with everybody and trying to figure out how to find you know a common or like for me you know bringing in songs and being like here's the songs i got fuck that like i don't want to do that i'll save those for my solo records yeah yeah an interesting aspect of doing that to come in with a determination of trying to hit a certain mark or to have a discussed version of what you guys are communally going for. The interesting thing about that is at the end, when you are done with the record, to see how far off the mark things come, because ultimately it's not about hitting that, it's about the process itself revealing to you how different it wants to be from what you'd had in mind. You know, what's funny about that though, is that I will always start a record off. I will write down just words. I'll just be like, what do I want to express? I'll feel something inside, like getting excited about making a record. And I'll just write down words or sentences or whatever, you know, just free form. And then usually when I go back to that, when a record is done, I'm like, holy shit, like it was all right there. Like everything that I was interested in expressing, I feel like is on this page. And now this thing exists. I mean, it could be like a horoscope type situation where it's like, I'm just associating it with the finished product. So you're hitting the mark. You're not even measuring the distance between intention and result. You're there. Well, I just think when you're just working on music and playing music with people constantly, it's a super social event. You're conveying things and feelings that are not always linguistic and they definitely aren't if you don't have a mic in front of your face. You're conveying something that is outside of what is considered communication or language in the explicit sense. And that's when very complex ideas can be more easily conveyed. It's interesting and you can get to very weird fucking places and do things that are totally unexpected and surprise yourself. And that to me is what I'm looking for most out of a record with Juan. I want to spend most of my time listening because I never get to do that making my own records. It's like, what am I going to do? Listen to my own fucking demos and just be like, okay, this one sucks. Okay, this one's okay. This one's embarrassing. Yeah, no, you should be listening to your demos while looking at yourself in the mirror and masturbating. (laughs) (laughs) And I can only do that 
that so many times a day. You know, it's, <laughs> yeah. it's exhausting. It is. But with Wand, it's like, no, we're just playing. We're not even really listening back. We're just playing for hours and hours and hours and hours. Do you ever go back and listen to your stuff? You know, sometimes I'll have to. <laughs> like when a new test press comes out for like, oh, here's a test press of Ganglion Reef. We had it repressed. I don't so, mean like that. I mean, like, it's hard to say the word enjoyment, but whatever it is, just to casually put it on. It's rare. Yeah. Very rare. And sometimes I will do it just to be like, what the fuck was I doing back then? Self-flagellation. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I do imagine that at some point in my life, I'm going to want to look back and look at all the things that I did and all the people that I've worked with. And I'll be searching for some kind of affirmation of that time. And I imagine, you know, the scope of that body of work, it's sizable. <laughs> you should be proud of yourself. Cause so to take everything in, you decided on doing your own stuff very late in the game. You and I have been going back and forth for a little bit. So I had a few days really to ingest everything. And from that kind of vantage point, because I didn't just listen to stuff once, I'd listen to over and over. And then today I listened to everything you ever did in one shot. Holy um, shit. Yeah, just as a reminder session. In fact, that's not true because I got up to driving through heaven and then it was four o'clock. So the last song, <laughs> I missed one song. Um, it's something you should be very proud of because you, you know, you're not sitting still, you're not resting on your laurels. And you know, the terrifying notion of people throwing beers at you because you're you're developing as an artist it never obviously slows you down because you kept changing way after that point so in 2015 you had what i believe is your only standalone single that wasn't on a record right machine man backed with me that's right we feel very differently about this this kind of feels like a little bit of a turning point to me you gave it three stars i give this single four and three quarters stars okay because it seems especially machine man i like both songs but machine man has its eye on the peaks and valleys and dynamics of scaling the heights of songwriting but you've also got that chilly mountaintop hammer to the skull thing going on as well. It's got lots of sections, but it's not Emerson, Lake and Palmer's Tarkus. <laughs> <laughs> it's an epic and it feels to me like it's next level stuff. But looking back, you don't quite feel that way about it, right? You think it's good, but there was much better to come. Yeah, I mean, they were throwaway singles from, not throwaway, but they were extra singles that we decided to release off of Golem. So 2015, 1000 Days comes out. This is a turning point in a lot of ways because it's self-produced. I believe your first self-produced work. Ganglion Reef also a mix and produced that one. But it is the first on Drag City. And Daniel Martins is gone before this record, right? That's correct. Yeah. And then, of course, the other two band members coming in. It's before them. Oh, this okay. Was... So Daniel stepped down and then Plum is the first one with the other two band members, right? Yeah. I love this record. Thank you, man. I really like this one. So a couple of touchstone reminders for me is, you know, I'm sure you're not going to swat this one away, but Revolver. Don't know if you're familiar with Unrest's Imperial. No, no. And of course, Nilsson Schmelson. Mm -hmm. Just the idea of a real love and passion for music. That's what I get from this is never staying in one place for too long. You're just all over the place in the best possible way. You never know what kind of song is going to come next. And I 
I love those kinds of records. Out of all the records, it's the most all over the place from song to song and even within the songs themselves. Right. And I feel like here, what that means is one song is like this, one song's like that. Then by the time you get to Western Come, four bars later, it's a different song. But the first notion that hit me is that it's funny, most songwriters who have ambition, they tend to reach farther than they're able to before they're actually able to do it and never reaching at the pace at which their talent and ability dictates. But to your credit, and it's so uncommon, you move precisely at the speed of your own talent. So all these songs, you pull them all off because you're able to, you know, that guy who chucked the beer at you should be bitch slapped because you're, <laughs> you're able to do all these things and then you go and do them, which, you know, sounds common sense, but it's typically not the case. Yeah, there was an accelerated growth at that time. And we were very much being like a punk outfit in that we were executing songs very uh, surgically and they were all very fast and short. And I was yeah obsessed with Anglo British invasion shit, the Beatles and the Kinks. And the I Who. definitely hear Kinks here. Yeah. And, and Rubber Soul and Revolver. Totally. Yeah. Just like, you know, as much earworm shit and hooks and all the things that there could possibly be. And also this influence of 60s, like London psychedelia stuff and all those records that came out of that, like Village Green and Satanic Majesties. By the way, our house here in Vermont, literally right across the street, directly across, there's a Village Green with a sign that says oh. Village Green. <laughs> you know, far and away, I think Village Green is their best record. The only thing that comes close is Arthur, I think. Sure. Yeah, this definitely has a lot of that. And one other aspect that you start bringing into your records, which I really love, is those sort of Brian Eno, Another Green World type interpolations, those mm -hmm. mood pieces. Dovetail, which I love. Dovetail is terrific. It kind of starts like a bongo jam circle and then coheres into this thing of just telescoping magnificence toward the end. And then the title track is, I would say, if I had to choose between the Melvins and the Indigo Girls, I would say it's more Indigo Girls, which you know <laughs> is probably why the guy threw the beer at you. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I mean, these are bold directions, less so these days, because the scope of music history, people are much more aware of it. But I'm glad you love this one almost as much as I do. This is, to me, easily your best album yet. It definitely is out of the three. It's the best one out of the first burst of records and the most true to our taste or where we were at the time. And like the Golem thing happened. And I think immediately after making that record, I was like, I want to do the absolute opposite of this. I want something as multi-chromatic, as wide and as colorful as it can possibly be and more emotional. I don't understand the people that come to me and say like, you really need to write heavy music again because they'll say things like, oh yeah, you're the best at that. It's like, no, I'm not. <laughs> that's not even my wheelhouse. You know, that's just something that I like, you know, and, and I'll listen to. Like, I love Judas Priest, but where I like to focus my abilities is, you know, in writing sad songs. Yeah. I mean, if I'm to be completely honest, those ratings I gave the early records, they are definitely how I feel about them. But the heaviosity, like the Twin Guitar Assault of Western Come, I don't see that as heavy, like with a capital H. But the heaviosity of the early stuff feels like training wheels for me. Yeah, this is kind of what I was saying about the Sonics trying to keep up and refine the technique. That stuff just takes time. You can't do that in a year. I couldn't all of a sudden just be like, look, I have total... Fretboard 
fluency and I can sing well. <laughs> that shit came later. You know, that stuff is earned and you have to be willing to fight for that stuff and yeah. go back and take, you know, your defeats or the people that are going to chuck beers or do whatever. And if you don't have that drive to do that, then you'll just stop. Yeah. A lot of people stop. 99% of people that play music at some point go, that was fun. No matter how successful they are, they'll go like, that was cool. Let's put this away now. And I want to live a quiet life. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Some people, even in spite of their common sense and everything that everyone says, they'll just keep doing it. You know what? All the people who say, you know what? I'm going to give this a year and see if it takes off. And if it doesn't, then I'll just, those are the losers of the world. And, and I won't even hesitate in saying that because anything great, it just is going to take time. There's no such thing as an overnight success and if you truly believe you were put on this planet to do something you fucking owe it to yourself to go balls out consequence be damned oh yeah i think that's the only way that you get somewhere what was your fallback plan what was your plan b i've never had one i just good, don't have good one. i good. never ever thought that far yeah me which too maybe uh wasn't the best idea but i can't imagine what else i would be doing because everybody no matter how big you are you experience quite a bit of insecurity and fear uncertainty and doubt about the future, you could have the best record, Pitchfork's record of the year or whatever, and be playing all the big festivals and still be like, what the fuck am I supposed to do next? How do I follow this up? Yeah, life is it, terrifying. <laughs> it is. It's just, mostly I talk to people who are like, I am trying to get things started and nobody cares about my music. And it's like, well, just do this because you love to do it. And if you just keep doing that, it's, it's inevitable you're going to hit with something. The only criteria I have to go on is that if I like something, at least one other person's got to like it. And so trusting your gut. Okay, I like that. So there's got to be somebody out there who also feels the same way. It sounds oh, yeah. stupid, but that's the only criteria I have to go by. I'm a filmmaker. I've had, you know, I've written, produced and directed two features and with this podcast and everything is creating something out of nothing. It's all a roll of the dice. It's all the dreams of a lunatic. It's not like anything that's pragmatic, you know, life pragmatism has nothing to do with that. And so you having success early on with a certain style and then moving out into uncharted territory, that's what's exciting to me and to certainly all of the listeners of Discography. All right, that about does it. A heartfelt discography thanks goes out to my beautiful wife and son, Jen and Mason, Rudy Fishman, Corey Hansen and Wand, Catherine and Drag City, my incredibly loyal fans, and especially the entire Patreon community, the Soldiers of Sound. I love every last one of you, and this show would not exist without you, my friends. Speaking of friends, it's high time for some new ones. They're in our Facebook group, Discography Soldiers of Sound. That's the best way to find out what's coming up on the show, but there's a hell of a lot more. You get recaps of the day in music history, the ability to pitch questions to guests, polls that put you in the driver's seat on guest and band decisions, access to a thriving creative hub if you're looking for a collaborator. Honestly, it is objectively the only worthwhile thing that's come from Zuckerberg's college efforts. So make sure you don't miss out. You can find the link to the Discography Soldiers of Sound Facebook page right there in the show notes. And if you don't mess with the Zuck, no sweat. 
Just email me at info at discograffiti.com and I'll keep you in the loop. So now that it's done and you want more, another way to dive even deeper into the limitless wonders of deep psych rock drone is to dive headfirst into Lou Barlow rating the zombies. That's episodes 59 and 60. Foxygen's Jonathan Rado rating Todd Rundgren. That's episodes 37 and 40. Anthony Fantano rating the Velvet Underground. That's episodes 32 and 33. And Pink Floyd episodes one and two join us during the upcoming week as we descend down 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 on discography's week-long wand deep dive of course if you're a patreon subscriber then you already know to keep your ears peeled throughout the week because this monday brings a heap and helping of the wild card episode digressions i aggressively court and then serve up piping hot for our patreons this monday we're kicking the week off right with the Corey hansen patreon collection volume one which is bursting at the seams with incandescently nerdy music discussions. And then there's this Wednesday's incredible Patreon-only episode of Discography's buried treasure show, Rock Cousteau. This week, Joe Kennedy and I exhume Spectrum's overlooked masterpiece from 1992, Soul Kiss Glide Divine. Make sure you visit patreon.com slash discograffiti and check out the thematically related deep dive as a music obsessive's way of life. Our Patreon's been up and running for a year, and with two episodes a week reliably posted, there are over 100 Patreon episodes at this point. That's an entire universe of indispensable music podcasts available to you for the price of of a cup of coffee a week. And of course, be sure to mark your calendars because next Friday, November 17th, we're coming at you with part two of Corey Hansen from Wand rating the entirety of both his own band and his solo catalog. Trust me, you're not going to want to miss it. And so, from now till then, don't let our youth go to waste, lads and ladies. It's Discography. Discography.